Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Thank you so much, O Lord, for your goodness toward us. We thank you for this day that you have made, and we rejoice in it. And we pray, O Lord, that you'd be with us and that you would use this time in our lives and in our marriages to produce good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So last, uh, last time we talked about the glory of the sexual relationship in marriage. And, um, and that's, um, it really is an amazing and beautiful thing. However, it isn't uh, an easy thing. And just like everything else in human experience, the sexual relationship is cursed. And therefore, it takes a lot of work, toil, and sacrifice, and patience, and persistence. Um, so that, I mean, there's a lot of, you see surveys, and there's a lot of people in marriage relationships, and they say, you know, we don't, I'm not happy with our sexual relationship. They don't have a rich or fulfilling sexual relationship. Um, for, I remember myself uh, before getting married, thinking that, you know, the sexual relationship was going to be spectacular, and, you know, I just had no concept that it was going to be challenging. Um, but the fact is, God has a purpose for it to be challenging and, and difficult. Um, and he wants to use our efforts in this area to do things in our lives that he needs to do. Um, in the same way that it, takes, it took a lot for our bridegroom to enter into a close, intimate relationship with us and for us then to enjoy the intimacy of that relationship. So it's the same with our relationship between bridegroom and bride in our marriages. But let me tell you one thing about your spouse, whoever your spouse is, he or she is a sexual person who needs a rich and robust and precious sexual relationship with you. And this is true for relational reasons. It's true for the purpose of them feeling loved and adored. It's true for their own refuge from the pains and burdens of life. And so it's something that is worthy of our attention and effort. Now, there are many obstacles in the, uh, the sexual relationship. And I'm sure that, you know, I, 
I even talked to Marianne this week, and we came up with all that we could think of, but I'm sure there are even others that I haven't thought of, that we haven't thought of. But um, they're just, it sort of reminds me of the, the human body. You know, so many different things can go wrong. And so it is in relationships and even in the sexual relationships, so many different things can go wrong. You have distractions. Um, you know, you have, as your kids get older, they're no longer, you know, always asleep in the evening. And they're, you know, we have people around the house and you might have someone in the next room or someone in an apartment on the other side of the wall. Or you don't, might be thinking about something you've got to, going on tomorrow that's preoccupying your thoughts. So there's all kinds of distractions. You might not feel well. You might be exhausted at the end of the day or, or have a headache or be sick. Um, you might not be in the mood. You might be discouraged or preoccupied or worried or sad. And, you know, getting two people where everything lines up is, is quite a challenge. Then there's stress. There's um, responsibilities that you have. There's burdens and worries. Um, you know, one of the disciplines of life in general, but it's especially important in the sexual area, is the principle of the Sabbath, where God calls us at a certain time of the week to push everything else aside, not because it's finished, not because it doesn't need any more attention, but because it's not time to give it attention right now. Push it aside and give your attention to rest. And, you know, so it is when couples need time together. They need focused time in, for a lot of things, but for the sexual relationship. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge with all the other things going on to carve out time. But a Christian has to be able to carve out time for the very important things. And, um, and so it's, it's got to be done, but you also have to recognize it as a very important thing. And then there's pain. You know, it can be painful in different aspects. Um, it's, it's not a, uh, something that's easy. It's, it's a very delicate um, dance that the sexual act and so it's in it's very sensitive parts of the body so there's there's uh, sometimes pain involved and sometimes you know you have the difficult coordination of one person who's um, you know unwittingly afflicting pain and there's got to be communication, but there, but pain is an issue. And then there's a, a very big one is self-image. Um, 
there's most people I think are still a little bit uncomfortable being naked in front of even their spouse and they're they feel um, you know all the imperfections of their body are come to mind and they're you know they're just self-conscious and they don't feel lovely and and uh, gorgeous and so they're that that causes you know them to hold back and you know this is this is a, a real dynamic and our culture just makes it so much worse because of mass media and the uh, reality of pictures and videos we have paraded in front of us the the most beautiful people in the on the planet and there's a certain you know form or shape that is deemed popular and and the fact is there are few on earth that have that form that shape and so they are all made to feel second rate or or unlovely and so that is a part one of the obstacles to you know letting yourself go and being free to really enjoy this sexual act um, then for some there's the fear of pregnancy and um, you know that that holds them back and and uh, you know when you're trying to get pregnant when both husband and wife want to get pregnant there's a certain oomph that's added to the sexual act and that shows us that the fear of pregnancy also has an effect a little bit of a negative effect because um, we don't feel that it's the time when we want to be moving in that direction um, of course in the ancient times pretty much there was no time I mean there probably were sometimes but generally they were always wanting more children and so it's a different different age and and our different mentality um, but a lot of these things just add up to people being uptight to people having trouble abandoning themselves and feeling vulnerable um, then you have people that you know couples that have different levels of desire and you might have one person who's just con way ahead of the other person in terms of their sex drive and um, and that leads to tension and that leads to um, you know disagreements or to times when you know one party is really into this and the other party isn't um, I, in my opinion sadly when Christian people talk about this they usually talk about the men as the ones being having the high the higher desire than 
their wives. But um, that's not always the case. It probably is the case more than it is the other way around. But it doesn't seem to me fair because if you portray it as a male-female thing, then the, the couples that are different, the ones where the wife is the one with a higher libido or whatever, those couples feel like there's something wrong with them. And there's nothing in the Bible that says this. So it just seems to me um, better to just say that uh, sometimes one has more desire than the other. Um, now, you know, when there's different levels of desire, of course, there has to be compromises. You know, you're in, you're gonna, you need to end up somewhere between where the two of you are in terms of your desire. It means that the person who desires more is going to have to be a little bit more patient. And the person who desires less is going to have to be a little bit more willing to step up and be available um, and, and work on being more into it. Um, we can't, that's, after all, that's what marriage is all about. It's not just about pleasing yourself, it's about pleasing the other. And it may be that, you know, we need to uh, see a doctor. It could be that there's things that hold us back that are, that are either metaphysical, metaphysical, either physiological, metaphysical means spiritual, but there could be medical, spiritual things as well, I suppose. But um, not that a doctor would uh, have something to say about usually. Anyway, so, um, and then there's the whole issue of disgust. Um, you know, we, we raise our young children, we raise them up and we talk to them about, you know, we're just afraid that they're going to get sexually involved as young people with others and, you know, all the dangers and the scary things about that. And so without really doing it on purpose, we can easily sort of taint the whole issue of sexuality in their minds to be negative, negative, negative. And then, you know, so you grow up like that and then you have a wedding ceremony and all of a sudden you're supposed to turn your switch from no to go and, and let go of all those hesitations and let go of all those subconscious feelings and impressions and attitudes. And it's not that easy to do. And you know that the things that are ingrained in you as a child are very hard to shake. So it's not, for some people, they, they go into marriage with still this idea that this is a little bit dirty or naughty. And it's hard for them to, you know, they, they understand that it's not a sin to do, but there's still something, it's almost like it's easy for them to think that this is just something sort of that's a necessary evil instead of something that's wonderful and delightful and joyful before the Lord. Um, at times the church has been a little too willing to relinquish the subject of sex to the devil. And, uh, and, it, and Christians have this kind of attitude that there's something evil about it. You can see it even in the Bible. You know, the first verse of 1 Corinthians 7, 
Paul quotes a saying that's going around in the church of Corinth. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the word touch there is a euphemism to have sex. And you can see, you know, I did a paper on this in seminary. You could go see ancient literature where this euphemism is used to not have to say, have sex. So, um, and then Paul goes on to say, it's necessary for a man to have his wife and a woman to have her husband. So don't deprive each other. So this was being used, this saying that was circulating among the Christians at Corinth was basically spreading the news that this is a, this is a the good, it's the best thing to stay away from the whole thing of sex. Even if you're married. And that's why Paul's correcting them. And, and uh, you know, he doesn't want to overcorrect them. But it, when it comes to the marriage relationship, he, he needs to correct them. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy 4. <clears throat> Although it's not obvious on the surface, it's really what this is talking about. Let me read it to you. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, and then he gives the two examples of what he's talking about. Men who forbid marriage and advocate, and two, advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So one of the things that people, some were forbidding marriage. Now what do you think their objection to marriage was? Two people sharing their finances with each other? I don't think so. Their objection to marriage was sex. But the Bible says nothing about, in, in any way, that condemns sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. And those who condemn marriage, Paul says this is a doctrine of demons. And then he goes on to say, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So it is important that, that uh, we, you know, we recognize that there might be some remnants of disgust in us left over. Even though we don't, we know better, hopefully we know better, that, that we have to get past. Some people feel like there's something sort of shameful or dirty about parts of the human anatomy. The sexual parts of the human anatomy in particular. And, um, and so it's important for us to <clears throat> you know, get past these things and recognize that God made Adam and Eve as they were and it was very good and they were beautiful. And this is the way it's supposed to be. He, it's his handiwork. And if a person who has this disgust, this remnants of disgust, doesn't work to reprogram their mind to think of marital sex as beautiful and joyful, 
then the disgust begins to turn into prudery. Now you know what prudery is. Being a prude is someone who um, believes that there's something inherently evil or wrong about sex, that it's a dirty thing. Um, you know, you have the disgust, which is just sort of an emotional reaction, but then you have prudery, which, which begins to become a conviction that then gets shared with others. And sadly, it can get handed down generation to generation. And it's an, a dangerous and evil philosophical conviction to, to have this view of sexuality. I do have two more um, obstacles. One is temptation. Um, you know, Proverbs 9, 17, 18 says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he who does not know that the but he does not know that the dead are there and her guests are the depth are in the depths of Sheol. The point is that he's talking about adultery. He's talking about, you know, sex with someone besides your spouse. And he says, stolen water is sweet. That's the sinful nature right there. There's something about stolen water that makes it sweeter than the water from your own faucet. It's, I don't think you can explain it. Um, it is just part of the twistedness of the human heart. And we need to recognize this because, because you know, everybody experiences this to one degree or another. And we just need to know that it's something that's inherent in sin. That there's a part of sin that we like doing just because it's sin. We like sin. And so, you know, whether it's, um, and this kind of temptation can come in many forms. It can come in the form of fantasies. It could come in the form of memories. I have a dear friend who lived a very licentious life for a long time before he became a Christian. And his problem is that he's haunted by memories of sexual encounters with women that he had in the past. So you know, it can be memories, it can be uh, pictures, it could be pornography, it can be real people, imagined or, or not, you know, that, are, that, are, that you come in contact with, or you see, and your mind takes it in a sexual direction. Um, so recognize that you're married to someone who's going to be somewhat prone, it may be a tiny, tiny amount, or it may be a large amount, but to some degree prone to this mentality, that stolen water is sweet. Now, there's many 
many advantages to the marital relationship that, that you can't find in an extramarital relationship. But, but there, this one, what this at least is an advantage of the extramarital relationship, and that is that it's sweeter because of the sinful nature. And it's important that we recognize this isn't because she is more beautiful than her. It's because my heart is wicked. My heart loves sin. And my heart prefers stolen water over my own well. Or my own faucet. Well, I haven't mentioned the biggest obstacle of all in the sexual relationship. And that's the struggles in your relationship. Just the struggles that happen when two sinners move in together and try to share life together. The expectations, the disappointments, the hurt feelings, the careless words, the stinging words, the failures to do what you said that you would do, the misunderstandings, all the garbage that goes into every relationship. This is the biggest obstacle to a joyful sexual relationship of all. And, uh, and if you think, you know, you, it, um, some people can have a happy sexual relationship even when they're struggling in their relationship. And that means one of two things. It can be a positive thing or a negative thing. Because the, the sexual relationship can actually be conducive, can be a catalyst to your personal relationship. And so often the sexual act is an investment in your personal relationship and therefore um, maintaining that relationship even when you're having trouble getting along about finances or about the children or about vacation, about the house, even when you're having trouble getting along in other areas, this can help you through. This can remind you that you're bonded and that you're, you're still one. But there's also a negative possibility. And that's the possibility that your sex is really sort of become detached from your relationship. Your sex has become all about your own pleasure and not about your bond. And, and that's not a healthy thing. Um, you don't want your sex life to be divorced from your marriage. Now, one of the symptoms that's common in terms of, uh, you know, when your relational struggles are thwarting your sexual happiness that, uh, that a lot of couples fall into is when you when deprivation is used as a weapon or as revenge against the other person um, now I, I understand well it's very hard to suddenly you know jump into bed and take your clothes off with someone who has hurt you 
and with someone that you don't feel is being loving towards you. That's a hard thing. And I'm not just saying swallow it and go for it. I'm saying, you know, in those situations, work out the relationship. If, if you don't feel like you can make love together, then work out the relationship, but don't just slam the door to, the, to sex. Um, but there is also potential value in, you know, showing love sexually. It can have, it can melt the other person's heart. You know, who's, which, who may have become hard towards you in some ways. The main thing in it all is that you're acting in love and not out of selfishness or out of pride, but that you are doing what you think is best for the other person. And beware of the fact that it's so easy for us to um, convince ourselves that what we want to do is really the best thing for the other person. Because it's very easy for the human heart to do that. Well, <clears throat> we're over our time. And so I'm not going to go any further. I was going to talk more about the, you know, dealing with some of these problems, but I'll come back to that. But uh, let, me, uh, let me talk about, split, let's split up and, and uh, talk about this. Um, again, nothing profound about these questions do you think we haven't, you know, just talk about as a couple, do you think you have an obstacle that needs to be um, overcome? Um, what kind of obstacles do you think there are? There are many. There could be many. But, um, and then uh, what can we do to get started? Hmm? Yeah, I'm going to give one to Susan. Not that Susan has anyone talk about two, but at least she can think about them. Okay, and if you have time, try to pray together at the end.